tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. There's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Here we are again, and oh, I apologize to begin with for today's reading. It's a toughie, um, the first reading from Romans. It's, oh, you know. You're having fun with oh, Romans, though, aren't you? I'm having fun. I like Romans, and I think, but I got, that was live, right? Your voice in my head. Yeah, the, the. I have this harebrained theory about the letter of the Romans, which I think may have some truth to it, that that, that Romans is about trying to establish a, a Talmudic ground for Greeks and Jews to to get along in Rome, in the church in Rome, and what is our relationship to the law now that the Messiah is here. Um, but boy, it's a tough letter because it's very, I think you have to be a a, a good Pharisee to understand it. Well, let's pray, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. And Mary, Queen of Peace, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's open the big book on the coffee table. The big book? Oh, there it is. And uh, I had to find it. Once he had to find the big book, it was, it was, was it keeping the door open? What? Or, no, don't <laughs> use the big book on the coffee no. table. No. Doorstep? No, he never would. All right. The, uh, um, uh, let's once again. I remind you that you can. You're allowed to read more than the daily readings. If you go to the USCCB uh, daily readings, and you can click on the daily reading easily. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> if I fall asleep, just poke me with a stick. Uh, was it? It's been a long day. The uh, um, you see the little citation. Um, in today's reading, it's Rome 5-12,15b, 17-19,20b to 20. It sounds like some secret code. It's not. You click on that, you'll get the whole chapter. And as I as I say, I always urge you to do that. But I said before we opened the big book on the coffee table, I believe that to understand St. Paul's letter to the Romans, you have to be a good Pharisee. Now, that may shock you. Because when we say Pharisee, we non-Jews often mean something bad. Oh, you Pharisee, you. 
the Pharisees were a noble group of people. Some of them went a little overboard. Uh, but Jesus Jesus and the Pharisees got along quite well. I, I, I know that, oh, they were always arguing, do you know any Jews? They're always discussing intensely, especially when it comes to Torah. But we see that the Pharisees send people to Jesus to say, get out because Herod's out to get you there. Um, and we see Gamaliel, who was one of the rank Pharisees, defending uh, John and and Peter when he says, you know, let him alone. This is going to, this is going to, um, if this is from God, you'll be fighting God. If it's not, it'll go away on its own. I mean, the Pharisees, uh, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were, uh, seemed to have been a movement that probably originated in Babylon that kind of invented the synagogue. Uh, again, forgive me if I repeat myself, but you're never going to find a synagogue mentioned in the Old Testament. The religion, the 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 religion of Israel in the Old Testament was not uh, a religion of the synagogue. It was a religion of the temple. Uh, the 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 practice of Judaism happened in the family, in the home, and three times a year you were supposed to go up on pilgrimage to Jerusalem if you could. Uh, and there were certain sacrifices that could only be offered in the temple in Jerusalem, and. Uh, the Jews, even in the first temple period, began to branch out. They were very entrepreneurial people. And uh, there seems to have been a colony of Jews in what is today Yemen and down the coast of South Africa, uh, the southeast coast of Africa. Even in the times of the first temple, they, they were a great trading people. Uh, oh, this is going to sound obscure. Indo-European languages are not famous for having a definite article. I don't know if that means anything to you. If you listen to Russian, if Russians talk like, give me book. Book was very good. They don't have an uh or a the. Um, Greek does, but that's kind of probably because of its influence uh, in near Eastern Mediterranean languages. But Semitic languages have the article. They have the, you probably use the word the constantly and never think about it, but you, you don't need it to make yourself understandable. It just, I find it very helpful, the and uh. We never think about them and we never think of what they really mean, but we got them. It is theorized, unless you're talking to kids, yes, uh, it is theorized that, that Jewish traders in northwestern Europe in the times before Christ may have actually brought the article, the definite article, the, the concept of it, to uh, the Germanic languages. It's just a theory. I kind of doubt it. But nonetheless, it, it, it makes the point of how entrepreneurial the Jews were. And if your job is to go to the temple three times a year, and you're trading for tin in England, which was a necessary uh, component of bronze, or you were trading for amber and furs in the Baltic, or ivory and gold on the southeast coast of Africa, or incense and spices in Yemen and India, how could you get to the temple three times a year? Well, that's where the synagogue comes in. 
In the exile, this is the theory, in the exile in Babylon, <clears throat> the synagogue uh, became uh, um, the vehicle of the religion of Israel. The synagogue and the Pharisees invented a kind of religion of Israel that is properly called Judaism uh, as a way to be an Israelite while our temple. And when the temple was destroyed, that was really all that was. There were only, according to Herschel Shanks of Biblical Archaeological Review, he said that two of, there were many Judaisms at the time of Christ, and only two survived the destruction of the temple, Christianity and Rabbinic Phariseeism. I, I would, I prefer, you know, Judaism is Rabbinic Phariseeism. I prefer to call it the religion of Israel. But you need to understand the position of the Pharisees in the synagogue. They preserved uh, Hebrew life and evolved into what we today call Judaism. And what really had begun to be called Judaism a few centuries before Christ. Remember the word, uh, um, this sounds all obscure, but it's very important understanding this. The, the, um, um, the Pharisees invented a way to understand the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law, that was precise, that told you how to maintain your identity and your faith in a foreign land, it was a noble thing. Uh, but some of them kind of became a, a religious, a religious uh, um, <laughs> police. Uh, hmm, I see. Is that pork that you're eating there? That kind of thing. Um, but in general, Phariseeism was a noble movement. And what is called Judaism today is technically called rabbinic Phariseeism. All right, that's it. Paul was a Pharisee. He tells us that in the scriptures. And uh he, Jesus had so much in common with the Pharisees, uh, and he had common things in common enough with him to argue with them. You don't see him arguing with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were an aristocratic party, mostly made up of priestly people and their on and their hangers on. They controlled the temple, and they had become very collaborationist with the Greco-Roman uh, authorities because, well, they were doing well by them. Um, but the Pharisees, they were, they were devoutly religious and they were worth having a good argument with. So uh, I think it's important to understand that I say to be a good Pharisee because the Pharisees developed in the centuries after the destruction of the temple, something called the Talmud. The word Talmud means the study and the, the Talmud is, we do not regard it as inspired, but it is normative for Jewish people. The Talmud is, oh gosh, I'm spending a lot of time with this. I'm sorry, but I think you got to understand it. The Talmud is, um, uh, uh, the word disciple is Talmud, and the word uh, study is Talmud, the, a study. And the Talmud uh, consists of two parts, the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah is the, the, the writing down and retelling of the oral law that Moses gave, that God gave Moses and the elders on Mount Sinai to explain how to apply the written law of the Torah. That's called the Mishnah. And if you see Talmud, you'll see Mishnah written, and then around it, as if side notes and footnotes, 
you will see commentary. This is called the Gemara. And those two together are called the Talmud. Every word is milked for its significance. And it is very hard for someone who is not schooled in it to, to read. I think if I remember properly, the Talmud opens with when must the Shema Israel be said by the priests in the temple? What? I mean, it's not a, it's not a story. There's not a narrative. It's just a, an endless, I mean, there's 20 something books of it. Uh, uh, there are two kinds of Talmud. There's the Babylonian Talmud, which is the authoritative larger Talmud, and the Jerusalem Talmud, which is smaller. So this is, this is very important to understand this. It's a process of reasoning that is very precise and milks every possible meaning out of every possible word. Paul was a great Talmudist. And the, the, the letter to the, the Romans, I, I believe is a Talmudic argument to the Jews of Rome as to how it can be that a Greek can be a truly a follower of Jesus without becoming a Jew. You see, the synagogue opened Judaism to non-Jews in a way that, that was um, unprecedented. A non-Jew could not go into the inner, inner part of the temple. Uh, um, they could come and listen to the rabbis. They could come and, and see the beauty of the building, but they couldn't go into the temple itself. They could only go into the courts surrounding it. Uh, but the synagogue, they could go into a synagogue, and Judaism presented this reasonable religion. I mean, it had odd things like you don't eat pork and you got to be circumcised and all of these things. But essentially, it was a beautiful religion that presented one God who was a loving father who gave us a reasonable law, whereas the gods of the Greeks and the Romans were these randy, uh, uh, dangerous nature spirits that you that you wanted to avoid if, if possible. Uh the, the religion of the Greeks and Romans was, was well, it was just, you know, weird. So, so many Greeks and Romans began to be involved in the life of the synagogue in a way that, that was uh, unprecedented. And when Paul came along and said, you can be fully an Israelite by faith in Christ without worrying about the dietary laws, the sacrificial laws, and, and all that sort of thing, and, and circumcision, and all these other rituals. You can be fully an Israelite. This sold like hotcakes among the, the Greeks and the Romans who are already participating in Jewish life. So this is the background of this letter. And again, the emperor uh, Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome around 50 AD over a, uh, an argument about a certain Crestus which probably was an argument about the Messiah. And they were coming back into Jerusalem under Nero. Before Nero started to persecute the church, he was very um, open to Judaism because his wife, the wife he'd stolen from one of his friends, uh, Papea Sabina, she was kind of a, a, a sympathizer with the Jews. So the Jews had a, a window of opportunity to come back to Rome. And, and I think Paul wrote this letter at that point to say, this is how you can get along. And that's why he says, okay, now we're actually going to get to the reading here in the last two minutes I got. I may go long. 
That's why he says, through one man sin entered the world, through sin and death, thus, be, thus death came to all men, inasmuch as all had sinned. And this word here is hamartia, which means to fail to hit the target. Now, the next word is transgression, which means, oops, it means to fall off the track. It means to, it, it, it can be kind of involuntary. And this is the hard thing about sin for us. Grace is a gift. Sin is an inheritance. But it's not my fault. I, that's the bad thing about it. You inherit sin. That's not fair. I don't, I don't know if it's fair or not, but it's true. If, if you, it's it just genetically so that, for instance, if you have a tendency to alcoholism, you may have inherited it from your ancestors. Uh, sin goes into families. I don't know if it's a physical heredity or a spiritual heredity, but we inherit sin. And so what he, what Paul is saying, this, this inherited sin, one person's transgression, many died. How much more did the grace of God, the gracious gift? Now, what is grace? The word is charis. It is related to the word for thanksgiving, but it could also mean a bonus. Uh, I believe it was, it could refer to the, the bonus that a Roman emperor paid to the soldiers when he was first made emperor. In other words, he was bribing them. It was not part of their salary. It was something they didn't earn, they didn't deserve, but they got it anyway. It can mean favor. It can mean, uh, uh, the, the happiness you 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 experience when you see someone of whom you are fond it's an unmerited gift so if by one person's falling off the track many died how much more did the the unmerited gift of god the the the, the uh, of the one man jesus the messiah overflow for the many for if by the transgression that the, the words paraptoma but paraptoma oh what's the singular never mind uh if by the transgression the literally an involuntary falling off uh, getting off the track if by the involuntary getting off the track of one death came to reign through that one how much more will those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of justification come to reign in life through the one messiah jesus in conclusion, just as through one transgression, through one transgression, condemnation came upon us all, so through the righteous act, the godly act, acquittal in life came to all. Okay, here we go. So many people read this and say, well, Paul is saying that everybody goes to heaven. There's universal salvation. The transgression of one all died through, through the, the sacrifice of Christ, all came to life. Let's look back at the context of this. All of these Greek Jewish Greek wannabe Jews <clears throat> in Rome who'd like to be part of this new Jewish movement, uh, claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, and the Jews are saying, "No, no, 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 no! You cannot be a follower of Jesus unless you don't eat pork, unless you practice this, unless you do that." And Paul is saying, "All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." that our common ancestor, you have a common ancestor, Adam. And so it is that you are in this together. All have sinned, not just Jews, not just Greeks. Because a lot of people would have thought, well, we're, we're following the law. We're not sinners. We see that in the Gospel of John. You know, we're, we've never been slaves. Well, all have sinned. 
We have this in common. We're all descended from Adam. And then when he talks about Abraham, I think you have to look at it in this context. And this is upsetting to certain people, but do not forget that Abraham was not a Jew. How dare you say that? No, that through through Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the legitimate descent came from Abraham. I believe that. The, the Jews are descended from Abraham. But you couldn't be an Orthodox Jew until at least the covenant with Moses. Because to be an Orthodox Jew is to live by the 613 commandments of the law of Moses. And if there was no law of Moses, how could you be a Jew? And Abraham predated Moses by at least 500 years. Abraham was the father of many nations. What I believe Paul is saying is that if you don't like Greeks, you probably wouldn't have liked your your ancestor Abraham, or, or you wouldn't have let him in the church because he was he didn't live up to your snuff. So I think that's what's going on here. It is not about universal salvation. It isn't about uh, 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 some sort of automatic, now that Jesus died, everyone's going to heaven. It's not about that. St. Paul says so many places elsewhere, and Jesus said elsewhere, that you got to make a choice, you got to live a certain way. But I really think this is the context of the letter. And and Paul, in, in doing this, the letter to the Romans is very appropriately named because I believe it is the foundational document of the Roman church that that we're in this together. All of sin fallen short of the glory of God. Um, uh, all are descended from Adam uh, and all can receive salvation through the Messiah. The Messiah is not just for Jews, but the Messiah is for all human beings. That's my theory on this. And again, take it. You got the salt shaker ready? Take it with a big grain of salt. But I, that's how I read this. I, I don't know if this helps at all. But I'll stop ranting and or raving. And we'll go to a break. We'll come back with letters. And don't forget, we have our Catholic Order of Foresters toll-free line at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. We'll be Today, we'd like to thank Steve, who is listening in Wisconsin, for donating his 1981 Kawasaki motorcycle. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. And just a little talk with Jesus made me whole. Made me Now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell him all about our troubles. He will hear our faintest cry. And he will answer by and by now when you feel the prayer will turn. And you know a little fire is burning. You will find a little talk with Jesus makes it right. It really does. Of course, having a little talk with Jesus means he gets to talk too. And he may just tell you some things you don't want to hear like, Repent. All right, let us now go to letters. Good old Tennessee Ernie Ford. This is from an anonymous person. As a Protestant who struggles with Catholic beliefs about Mary, I need to ask a genuine question. If Mary never committed a sin, then was this obvious to her parents? Does this mean that she never got into mischief as a little girl? You know, as I always say, I wasn't there. Um, 
what we believe about sin is that sin, in order to be sin, really, fully, full sin, you really have to know it's a sin and have a full turning of the will. I'm sure our Blessed Mother made mistakes and that sort of thing. Um, uh, that that um, uh, I, I have no doubt she laughed. Her son seems to have told a lot of good jokes. Um, she was fully human, and she was in no way divine. But what we mean by the Immaculate Conception is that the effects of the sin of Adam and Eve... didn't didn't run her life she the sin of adam and eve uh, weakened our will and darkened our intellect and and put us at, at a remove from god and um we believe that okay oh dear I, i've said this before i you know I, I repeat myself a lot i'm old you'll forgive what we believe about the church is that the church is one even though it appears to be divided, it's holy, even though it's got a lot of sinners in it. It is universal, even though sometimes people make the mistake of talking about the American church. I'm not an American Catholic. I'm a Catholic living in America. It is universal, one holy Catholic uh, and apostolic. In other words, the structure of the church is an apostolic structure, that Jesus authorized the leadership of the church um, and, and that Jesus did create an institution as well as just a fellowship. The church is holy. Well, if you meet a lot of Christians, you're going to think, well, the church isn't that holy. But there was a moment in time when there was only one person in the church. You know, the early Christians believed the church was the first of God's creation, created even before the universe. And the church was created to be the bride of Christ. And we have the, the privilege through faith and baptism to join ourselves to that church. God sees the church as a woman, a wife, a mother, a family. And we have the privilege to join ourselves to that, to that reality. And that means the church existed without any members. We think of the church as an institution. That's not how God looks at the church. It isn't how the early Christians thought of the church. The first person to be joined to that institution or to that to that family, that that relationship, was Mary, the princess of the house of David. She was the first to accept Christ in her life. She was faithful to him at the foot of the cross. She was there at Pentecost. She is the first of Christians. Now a lot of sinners have joined the church, sinners like me and you. But the church is sustained by the holiness of its members and the holiness of its founder and the holiness of the spirit that pervades it. In order for the church to be holy, it must always have some members who are holy. We believe deeply in the communion of saints that these, these saints who have lived holy lives, maybe not perfect, but holy, that they sustain the church. So God gave, we believe that God gave Mary, the princess of the house of David, a special gift. He borrowed, as it were, from the merits of Christ on the cross 
and gave her the opportunity to be holy in a perfect way. And what does it mean to be holy? It doesn't mean to never make a mistake. It doesn't mean to never, to never uh, be, be uh, 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 I suppose, disappointing to parents. But to be holy means to be utterly consecrated to God. And from the moment of her conception, we believe that she was utterly consecrated to God, not only so that Jesus could inherit a perfect humanity from her, but that the church could be holy from its beginning. It's a, it's a kind of complicated idea, but it's a beautiful idea. And, you know, St. John Paul, the great, said, uh, um, called her the most redeemed of women. It isn't that she didn't need salvation. It isn't that she didn't need redemption. It isn't that she didn't need a savior. She had all those things from her son, but, but they call it prevenient grace. In other words, grace that came ahead of time, uh, because for God, time is just not an issue. So that's, that's what this is about. It isn't about she was a perfect little girl who got straight A's. She may have been. <laughs> Maybe she didn't. She had to, another thing I think you got to remember is that she's the third person in history who was immaculately conceived. Adam and Eve were conceived without the effects of original sin, albeit in the mind of God, but they were conceived. They, they had a beginning in time that did not affect, that did not include the effects of original sin. They said, no, thank you. We want to be God's equals instead of his children. And the Blessed Mother is the third person. Jesus is the fourth. And she accepted her immaculate conception. And we think, oh, that'd be great. You know, I don't have the tendency to sin. You don't have... The, the responsibility of the immaculate conception must have been breathtaking. Because, you see, our Blessed Mother, uh, um, I, I don't get a choice about suffering. I'm not immaculately conceived. Far from it. I don't get a choice about suffering. I got to suffer. Our Blessed Mother and her Divine Son chose suffering freely. That's an important part of our liturgy, that Jesus, before the consecration, we say that he fully accepted his suffering. And our Blessed Mother suffered with him, though she didn't have to. So we love her because we, you know, we love her because we see, if we're doing it right, we see the church as a family and a family has a mother. She's not divine. She is not uh, uh, saved on her own on her own uh, <laughs> her own effort. She was saved and redeemed by her son, but she's uniquely the paradigm, the example of what we can be if we cooperate with the grace of God. So I, I hope that helps a little, anonymous. Um, you know that that. Uh, if you look at the church as an institution, well, the Immaculate Conception makes no sense. If you look at the church as a family, the way God looks at it, it makes a whole lot of sense. A family has a mother, and I am so grateful for that mother who is the princess of the house of David. So I hope that helps. God bless, and I'm honored that you listen. Okay. Let, oh, by the way, the phone lines are wide, wide open. Wide open. You know, was it something I said? Yeah. Um, the uh, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Now, this is, this is uh, uh, Claudine again. She says, how can the souls be holy if they're there to do penance for their sin? Since in the Bible, God says that only God is holy. If a person dies in what we call the, the um, 
state of grace. Uh, the the um, in other words, they are in a right but not perfect relationship with God. They are uh, holy because the Spirit of God is still living in them. They are finishing things up, as it were. And your second question, since the Catholic Church invented purgatory, which we did not, why didn't they invent that the souls could pray for themselves? They didn't invent purgatory. I I theorize that purgatory is the same as justice. If you read C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters, he descri- in the last chapter, he describes purgatory beautifully. And it's simply this. I am going to stand before the light and the love of God someday, and everything in me that is darkness will be burned away by that perfect light and love. Uh, that that I've you know people I've known who died and lived tell about it. They talk about the judgment. You experience all the pain that you caused, and you you go through your whole life. These people say, "That's the judgment." You see, in the judgment, you see, when we think of judgment, we think up or down, guilty, not guilty. The the Hebrew concept of justice, or of judgment, rather, was let's fix up things that need fixing. So I'm going to stand before God, and he is going to help me do my homework. It might be a little painful in spots, very painful in spots, because I've caused a lot of pain in my life. So purgatory and judgment, I suspect, are the same exact thing. And and we didn't invent it. Jesus invented it. And it's it's spoken about in the scriptures elsewhere. I remember sins that are forgiven, that can be forgiven in this world, and sins that cannot even be forgiven in the world to come. There is a forgiveness of sin that happens in the world to come. If a person definitively decides against Christ in this world, there is no way they can be saved after death. But if a person has decided for Christ and has accepted Christ truly as the Lord of their life, but yet they have done so in an imperfect way. They still are in what we call a state of grace. They are still holy. Thus, we call them the holy souls. I hope that helps, Claudine. We're going to go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day. Um, And uh, um, we'll have phone calls at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We will be back, God willing. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester. An Illinois Life Insurance Society not available in all states. That's what I'm hoping. I'm going to keep talking about Jesus, and maybe I'll actually hear it someday. All right, let us now go to the word of the day. <laughs> the vivid phrase in Luke 12, 35, Jesus said to his disciples, gird your loins and light your lamps. What, what, what's the girding of your loins about? It's very simple. It, it's not... It, it, put your belt on. <laughs> you see, ancient Greek and Roman clothes were kind of loose, and, you know, you could trip over them. But Jesus is saying, you know, 
be people, be people whose 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 waist is belted, and you would actually tuck if you had a long garment, you would tuck some of it in to the belt so you wouldn't wouldn't fall over. I I've often worn an L but mass and couldn't find a cincture and uh, come very close to tripping. So that's all it means. Put your belt on and be ready to and be ready to march. Light your lamp, put your belt on, because we're going somewhere. All right, that's simple word of the day, but I don't know. I just thought people might want to hear that. Let's go to phone calls. Hello, this is Dwight Schrute from the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. No, this is Kurt. Kurt, what can I do for you? Father, happy Tuesday. Thank you. Uh, Father, I was wondering, uh, the church is going to put a cemetery in front of the church, and then, you know, with the crosses, and then... If you want, they'll place the name of a deceased loved one for you. I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Oh, I've never heard of such a thing, but I imagine it's to celebrate All Souls Day. Is that is that the deal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I suppose it's not awful. It sounds kind of, you know, kind of strange. Are, are they charging for it, or is it a freebie? So No, it's a I freebie, it's a fr- but I don't know. Good. It's, it's not sitting right. That's why... I figured I'd call you. Well, it's it's a remind. You know, well, it is. It doesn't sit right in some ways, I suppose. But it sounds like it's it's not a Halloween deal. It's it may be reminding people that this is what the thing is about. That life is short and that we need to be prepared. So, you know, it may not be your thing, but it'll be interesting to see how it works out. This is the way that strange customs start. <laughs> we'll see. I don't think it's particularly wrong. It's not a Halloween thing. It's not emphasizing something immoral or ungodly so it's just reminding people that 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 um of the loved ones they have who've gone before them and well we're on life's little conveyor belt and it's still clicking along so i don't know if that helps kurt but you know no it you don't have to I do it all right well god bless we listen to you every day so thanks for everything well, you do i hope you're taking it with a grain of salt all right god bless good to hear you kurt thanks brother. let's go there's the salt shaker. Let's go to Christine, who's calling in from Chicago. What can I do for you, Christine? Praise be Jesus Christ, Father, and God bless no, you, and thank you for your service over there at Relevant Radio and throughout oh, your whole life you. for God. Uh, Father, I would really appreciate it if uh, you in any way could uh, help with my request, and that is I'm requesting that if we could please have a uh, rosary said before the uh, noon mass, but one for peace, so that they don't have all the intentions, so that it is just uh, the rosary itself, so that the people that uh, maybe they don't say it at, at nighttime all the time, because uh, it's kind of longer, but well, you got to admit, the, just the rosary itself is only, uh, it's probably between 10 and 15 well, minutes. Christine, one of the things, though, that we can, you, one can do, with uh, the the app or any any of the ways you can access the station is you can play the rosary twice. Part of the problem is that that there's so much that we need to do, and you know I think it's a wonderful thing to pray an extra rosary for peace. And certainly, our Blessed Mother Fatima asks us to pray the rosary for peace. So I will recommend to people that if you're going to listen to the mass, pray a rosary before it. I don't know that we have the broadcast time to do it. Um, because there's so much going on and um but it's it's I'm, I'm glad you called in because to remember to say the rosary for peace and uh boy do we need peace at the time let's go to david from miami florida are you with us david what can i do for you 
Hello, David? Yes, yes, yes. Hello? There's no David. Yes, David, what can I do for you? Yes. Yeah, it says the um, moon and the sun were created on the fourth day, but God said, let there be light on the first day. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what, how did they reckon the days, you know, without the moon and the sun from the first day to the fourth day? You got to remember that that the scripture says elsewhere, a thousand years are like a moment in his sight, that the recognition of time. If I say, oh, back in my day, I don't mean back in my 24 hours. I remember back when I was young and and didn't realize life was going to be this interesting. Um, so the idea of the day, it, it also corresponds to an epic. Uh, but I, I think you have to understand the first nine books of the Bible, the first nine chapters, rather, of the book of Genesis, are, are I always say, literally true from God's point of view. We see things in terms of 14 billion years, and we see things in terms of, of the Big Bang and all that. God sees, uh, sees it from his own perspective. And the most important thing about, about the story of creation is the number seven. Everybody says the world was created in seven days. No, it wasn't. It was created in six. And six is a number for in Hebrew thought that, that means imperfection. It's a very imperfect number. Seven is the perfect number. Six falls short of seven. But the fact that there's a seventh day and the creation itself exists is proof that God loves us. He's made a covenant oath with us in the seven days mentioned. Now, the second day, if you look at the days, the first day, it says it was evening and morning, the first day, and God saw what he made and saw that it was good. He doesn't see that the second day is good. The second day is not good. Why is the second day not good? Rabbi Lefkowitz told me because the, the, the heavenly waters were separated from the earthly waters. In other words, there was separation between heaven and earth. And what God is saying is, I've given you this world because I love you. It's not a perfect world. It's only a world of six. But if you persist and are faithful to me, there's a world of seven. This is beautiful poetry. So if we, if we look at it as a science text, we're going to miss the point of it. Not a science text. This, God sees it as, as, a, as, as, as an oath. The word seven in Hebrew is the exact same word as to swear an oath. Shava. It's the same word. In Hebrew, you wouldn't say, I swear I'm telling the truth. You'd say, I seven, yeah, I'm telling the truth. So so I think you have to get past the idea that this is a science textbook and understand that this is God describing what he did and why he did it. I don't know if that helps at all, David. Yeah, it does, it does. Thank you for, for that. Thank you very much. Good, Father. good. Have a great day. Good. God bless, David. Thanks for listening. Right. Let's go to Jim. You're, let's go to Jim from Volant, Pennsylvania. What can I do Hi, for Father. you, Jim? Uh, question I had was about the uh, the Jewish people and the covenant. When when mm-hmm. Jesus came, before Jesus, they were the chosen people. Mm-hmm. After Jesus came in the New Testament, the Catholics were the chosen people. Is that correct? No, <laughs> I don't think it's correct. No, that that no. You know, th- this has to do with uh, uh, oh gosh, is it supersessionism that the the Christian covenant supersedes the Jewish covenant? That the old covenant no longer exists now that we have a new covenant. It is very interesting to see in the Bible that there is no such thing as the new Israel. There's just Israel, and the members of the church in the first 
25, 50 years, they were all people we would call Jewish with some exceptions. And Dr. Rodney Stark writes a wonderful book, The Rise of Christianity. It's a book of sociology in which he points out that there were 7 to 10 million Jews in the ancient world. And then 200 years after that, there were less than a million. What happened to all those Jews? Some died in plagues, persecution, but not all of them. Most of them probably accepted Christ as the Messiah and blended into the Greek-speaking population of and the uh, Aramaic-speaking population of the Persian Empire. So, so there's... We didn't become the new Israel. We were grafted into Israel, St. Paul says. And we read in the letter to the Hebrews that we have, a, we have, we have better promises. The covenant that God made with, with uh, 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 the Israelites on Mount Sinai is, I, I will be, and with Abraham for that matter, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the covenant. It doesn't promise the forgiveness of sins. It does not promise a life after death. It doesn't promise the resurrection. It doesn't even promise the Messiah. And the Jews have not ceased to be God's people, but we have been added into them throughout the world uh, that now the entire human race is the chosen people. Uh, so, So that was the point of the prophets, that God didn't simply choose the Jewish nation. He chose all humanity and created the Jews to uniquely serve humanity by bringing into the world an ethical and moral religion uh, in which God made sense. I don't know if that helps, Jim, but that's the way I look at it. Does that help a little? A little, um, but didn't the Jews reject Jesus as the new Savior? Some, if, you, if Rodney Stark is right with his sociology, some did, most did not. So it was mainly the That's, Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, well the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, well, actually, uh, Judaism and Christianity, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, but sacrifices continued on the Temple Mount. And the definitive separation between Christianity and Judaism happened around 130 AD in the last of the Jewish wars. Uh, that that uh, Rabbi, I think it was Rabbi Kiva, decided that that a fellow named Bar Kokhba or Bar Kosiba was was the Messiah, and they were taking back the Holy Land from the Romans. And uh, uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, if you were in the territory that had been conquered by this group, you had to definitively say Jesus was not the Messiah that Bar Kokhba was. And they almost captured Jerusalem, but they didn't. And then uh, after that, Jerusalem was completely leveled. Jews were forbidden entry into Jerusalem except one day a year to mourn the destruction of the temple. However, Greek Christians were allowed in. That's the point at which we definitively split and thought of ourselves as two different religions. Before that, we were thought of as a sect of of Judaism. We were one of the many forms of Judaism. Uh, But, but, um, you know, that... that, um, the separation, you know, it always amazes when I've had Jewish friends come to a Christian service and very, if they're Orthodox, they would never do that. But, you know, I've had a number of people who were Jewish who visited my church and they're amazed because we're reading the Jewish scriptures and the, the ceremony is recognizably, it, it's not foreign to them. Uh, the mass is riddled with Old Testament scripture. And so they, they don't, they're, they're startled by that. And I think that's a good thing to, to understand that that um, Judaism, what is today called Judaism and what is today called Christianity, both have their roots in the religion of the temple. 
So, so that idea that they were the chosen people, well, God has not, God's covenants are not, are not, uh, uh, um, they're not, they're not revocable. Uh, God still uniquely loves uh, the descendants of the patriarch Judah and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he doesn't love them more than he loves uh, you and me. So I hope that helps a little, Jim. Yeah, what was the name of that book? Uh, the Rise of Christianity by Dr. Rodney Stark. It's a book of sociology, and it's it's quite readable, but it's excellent. So uh, give it a shot. It's not Thank bad. You. Dr. Rodney Thank Stark. You, I believe the book is called The Rise of Christianity. He's a, an amazing scholar. It is. I'll link right, it in go. the show notes. This is that. We're going to link it in the show notes. You could you can see it at, uh, on the website. Let's go to Pete from San Diego. Thank you, Pete, God bless. Thanks for listening, Jim. Pete, what can I do for you? Hello, Father. I'm asking about uh, Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 53. Um, at the moment Jesus dies, those verses talk about people being uh, risen from the dead and walking into uh, mm-hmm. Jerusalem. Can I ask if that really happened? Is that, did that literally happen? I wasn't there, but I think it did. Uh, the Bible is good history. You know, a wonderful book to read uh, on, on the historicity of of the New Testament, I think, is the case for Christ. And then there's uh, by by uh, uh, P- Pastor Lee Strobel, who was an award-winning criminal journalist um, uh, um, from, I think, was he from the Chicago Tribune? And he was an atheist and decided to prove to his wife uh, that this Christianity stuff was nonsense. And so he went right for the resurrection. And with his background as a court reporter, um, he realized that the four Gospels are perfect eyewitness testimonies. And he realized Jesus really did rise from the dead. And I would say that if people saw uh, people who had died in Jerusalem, you know, I mean, this the resurrection was, was a history-shaking event. I, uh, It's not implausible to me that odd things would happen. I mean, people see ghosts all the time. This might have been a little bit more than a ghost. This might have been something unique because scripture says elsewhere to God all are alive so if God wanted this witness to happen why couldn't it happen so you know it's no more far-fetched than the resurrection and also Dr. Brant Petrie's uh, book The Case for Jesus is also excellent uh, on the same theme so Case for Christ by Lee Strobel and that's the case for Jesus right isn't it Nick? A Case for Jesus by Dr. Brand Pitry. So that's what I would recommend you read on that. But I have no problem that this could happen. I mean, it's not more implausible than Jesus rising from the dead. Oh, speaking of implausible, there's music in my head. And that means that Drew is coming up. And he's really quite plausible, whatever that means. You can plaus him. What?